0: Hey, everybody. Uh, so my talk is, is mainly going to be about uh, being wrong and how uh, we, we hate being wrong. And we, we love to be right. And even when uh, we know we're wrong, we fight uh, to convince ourselves that we are right. And uh, to start out, um, the thing that got me thinking about this the most was, this idea uh, called the end of history illusion. And basically the end of history illusion means that you um, you can look back at yourself 10 years ago and you can think about the sorts of things you said and the music that you listened to or um, the movies you would have watched or the, the girlfriends that you thought you wanted to date and you kind of chuckle and laugh at that person but at the same time, you don't do that with yourself now. You don't realize that in 10 years, the person you are right now is a person that you would laugh at. We tend to think, I am a, I am a totally finished product right now. Like, this is it. This is the way I'm going to be forever. And, and so this study was done talking about the, the end of history illusion, and the psychologist, uh, his name's uh, Jordy Koidbach, and he, this is what he has to say about it. believing that we just reached the peak of our personal evolution makes us feel good the experience might give us a sense of satisfaction and meaning whereas realizing how transient our preferences and values are might lead us to doubt every decision and generate anxiety so no one wants to say that their current interests or opinions or passions are transient you know like that's, that's me, that's, that's what makes up who I am. The things I'm passionate about, the things I care about, that that defines me and those, those things aren't gonna change because it's, it's me that's permanent. Um, but if you're like me and you've ever kept a journal <laughs> or now you don't even have to be a journal keeper, you just you have your Gmail account. But, but, but you go back in time and you look at the sorts of things that you said, or the things that you thought, or the language you used, how overwrought your like, religious language was at a certain time, and you think like, oh my gosh, like, I hope no one sees what, what I just saw. Um, so, I just got a new computer uh, for the Mockingbird office, and so I was going through these old files, like moving them from... The external hard drive onto my new computer, and so I found all these old talks that I gave um, at a, in a high school ministry and like it was so embarrassing. I mean, everything I said was completely um, the opposite of what I believe now and and not just that, but it, so it was it was so earnest, you know like I was so sure that what I was saying was the truth and and now I'm doing the same thing and it makes me worry that what I'm what I'm doing is is gonna be laughable in ten years. So and now it's 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 on it's on camera, so that's great. But what I'm getting at is that you know, much as we may want to be right, and it's not just about ourselves, but about God, about the nature of God, or about you know the benefits of a paleo diet, um, you, you're probably wrong. And, and you don't have all the answers that you think you have. And you know, this is basically um, modern behavioral psychology. You know, there's the confirmation bias, the optimism bias, the hindsight bias, the attribution bias. It's all the same, it's, it basically is saying that more often than not, we think we're more right than we are and we tend to be extremely optimistic about the things that we think. Um, and the the interesting thing is that, on the whole, if you think about human error, we tend to admit that, okay, like, yeah, it's actually true, like, um, we do get it wrong, you know? There's a general cultural willingness to admit the fact that, like, humans make mistakes, you know? Like, we'll say, Gosh, to a friend, we'll say, you know, we're only human. Or uh, if, if your kid gets in trouble, we'll say, you know, kids will be kids. Or, uh, you know, Rod Stewart, like, I wish that I knew then what I know now. And, and everybody understands that, and they can sort of, they can relate to it, but it has to stay general. As soon as it gets specific, we have a really hard time admitting that, that we're wrong. Um... If it gets specific, we sort of head for the hills. Um, we may like understand philosophically or morally that humans make mistakes, but it is so hard to say, "I was wrong," or "I am wrong and and this sort of spans the gamut it's not just um, it's not just the small sort of everyday conversations with your spouse it's it's you know, if you spill hundreds of millions of gallons of oil into the ocean, you also have like a hard time saying, we made a mistake, we screwed up, we're sorry, you know? Um, so, <clears throat> even if... Th- the strange thing is that even, even if we don't want to be wrong, the refusal to say that I am wrong continues to make us look even more like idiots. And we know that, we've seen it on TV, hundreds of times, we've noticed ourselves doing it in conversations with friends, and it still doesn't keep us from doing it again, saying like, you know, like I will defend my point, I know I'm wrong, but I will fight tooth and nail to prove to you that I'm not going to stand down, you know. Um, Psychologists, they they talk about uh, the hindsight bias, and that's basically our way of looking back and sort of rewriting our history. You know, we think about a mistake that we made, something that didn't make us look so good, and we just have a hard time actually remembering what happened. Like if, if, some, if someone asks you, and, and I've been thinking about this in writing this talk, like what, what was the time where I made a mistake or, or, or was wrong? And I can certainly tell you how I felt when I realized I was wrong. You know, I was like, we all know that feeling of total embarrassment and shame, like wanting to sort of crawl into a hole. Um, But we have a hard time actually remembering what happened, like when that moment was where we actually did something wrong. And that's because we have this hindsight bias. We tend to rewrite our history in these moments of very painful embarrassment. We, we want to just sort of hide under the rug. And then there's another bias um, called the attribution bias, which basically means you just blame shift. You know, you say, like... It was, I was a victim of circumstance, you know? I was wrong, or things didn't go the way I thought they were gonna go, but it's not my fault. It's just that things happened, you know? And it's it's interesting how quickly we are to, to pull the victim card. And we see this in, in culture everywhere, from, you know, Cecil the Lion last year to, you know, hashtag Oscar's so white. Um, even though we have no personal investment in something, um, it, is so, it, it feels so good to sort of play the victim card. Um, and so that, that leads to another point, that if we don't do that, if we don't, um, if we don't attribute our mistakes to something else, We feast on the wrongness of other people. We feast on the wrongness of others. So we may not be good about admitting we we are wrong to say like, yeah, I was wrong, I messed up, but we're really good at pointing it out in other people. Um, One of the things that we have said at Mockingbird quite a bit is that the only thing that feels better than being right is feeling wronged. And, and there's, it's so true. I mean, there's such a righteousness that comes from the feeling of, like, someone wronging you, you know? Um, and that sort of collective rage that you sense uh, with something like Cecil the lion, it's so much more than the issue at hand. You know, it's so much more than, than a dead lion. It's about some sort of justification that needs to happen internally, Um, and so what I want to talk about a little bit is how the yearning to be right has this defensive air to it, this kind of like, all right, I need to defend myself from the world around me, and it's not just about being right about this issue. It's about being right, like me being right, and so I'm going to play this clip. It's from uh, Mike Birbiglia, who's a comedian, and he has a stand-up show on Netflix uh, called <laughs> My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, and, and his, his stand-up is, I mean, you should watch the whole thing, it's, it's amazing, but this whole, this whole hour is him basically talking about how much he needs to be right, and how it is killing his relationship with his girlfriend. So this is kind of early in the relationship, they've just met, uh, they're on a trip together and they've had this great time and suddenly things start to unravel.
1: I was opening up to her and every night we'd be up till 2 or 3 in the morning and, and, and we were so happy. We, I, at one point I was like, well, we should do this again, we should go on another trip and you could get a license or a passport and <laughs> Jenny said, that sounds great, but I don't think I'd get a license or a passport because they don't make me get one and I was like, yeah, but it's the law, you know. And... <laughs> Jenny says, yeah, I don't think I'll get one because they don't make me get one, you know. That's how I feel. <laughs> that's how Jenny argues things sometimes. She'll just say, that's how I feel. And, and I'll say, that's not an argument. <laughs> like, we're not even in an argument right now because you don't have an argument. <laughs> and she'll say, I just won that argument. And I'll say that's not even possible based on the definition of what an argument is. She'll say, I just won that argument again. That's how I feel. You you could see how this could be a little bit maddening, you know. I, Uh, On our final day on the trip, we got into an argument about essentially nothing. She noticed there was a basketball court at our hotel, and she said, we should play, and I was like, yeah, but not like a game. And she said, why? And I said, well, because I'd win. And she said, no, I think I would win. I go, no, and I I know that I'd win, and I know that what I'm supposed to say is that uh, the guy says I'll win, the girl says I'll win, and the guy lets her win, and then she likes him more, but I just don't have that in me. (laughs) And Jenny goes, "You don't have to let me win. Let's go out and play." And so we went out and played basketball, and I just kicked her ass. I mean, it was just like it was like ten to one, it was 10 to one. I mean, I was having a good day, but still. I was just destroying her. And at one point, she literally said, I've never met someone who's so obsessed with the score. And I said, the score is what makes it a game. (laughs) They're arguing over lunch and then, Again, it comes up at dinner, and then we're still arguing about it two or three in the morning, but essentially nothing. And she said, I don't understand why you're so obsessed with being right. I go, I'm not obsessed with it. I just am. (laughs) I said, why do you think you're right? And she says, that's how I feel. (laughs) I said, if you think I'm so wrong about everything, why are you even with me? And Jenny says you can't choose who you love which is true but it doesn't mean it's good
0: <laughs> okay <laughs> that's awesome and the reason we laugh is because we totally do that, you know? We totally, um, we, we will totally kill a relationship for our own need to be right. And, and so that's, that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is why do we need to be right? Why? What, what in the human condition makes us need to be right? And So the first thing is... Um, being certain makes us feel powerful you know if you 're certain about something, um, you kind of have this illusion of control of the world around you you know if, if you 're certain about something it gives you it gives you a mental handle on the way that the world works. your narrative, your story for for how the world works and and how to participate in the world it it, it remains like nicely categorized you know you, you can sort of categorically order it as you always have. And, and and so in that way, you kind of have this sense of power. There's this book called Being Wrong by Catherine Schultz. And uh, it's it's amazing. I wish we had it on the book table. but um, So I'm going to read a little quote from her because she says it better than I ever could. Um, she says... Certainty might be a practical, logical and evolutionary necessity, but the simplest truth about it is that it feels good. It gives us the comforting illusion that our environment is stable and knowable, and that therefore we are safe within it. Just as important, it makes us feel informed, intelligent, powerful, when we're certain we are lords of our maps. The outer limits of our knowledge and the outer limits of the world are one and the same. Seen in this light, our dislike of doubt is kind of emotional agoraphobia. Uncertainty leaves us stranded in a universe that is too big, too open, too ill-defined. Where certainty reassures us with answers, doubt confronts us with questions, not only about our future, but also about our past, about the decisions we made, the beliefs we held, the people and groups to whom we offered allegiance. The very way we lived our lives. So we fear uncertainty because uncertainty makes us anxious about the world we live in. But for Schultz here too, she's also saying that you kind of detect this note of like there's an anxiety about guilt. You know, it's not just about intellect anymore. It's also about something I am that, that I'm ashamed of. Something in my past that I can't let go of. Something about who I am that I can't change. Um, in, in the church, we talk about things done and left undone in, in the confession. We are uh, who, we, who we can't help but being. And uh, she, in another part, she mentions Kierkegaard. And he has this metaphor for an, uh, like one of the old, like rustic American settlers out in a tent in the middle of the frontier, um, all by himself. And as he's settling, the way that he can stay safe is by staying up all night and banging pots and pans in his tent to keep away the wolves. And that image just resounds so beautifully with, with what she's saying here, that in order to like maintain my certainty, I will, I will bang these pots and pans to sort of keep my own safety. But that metaphor also gets at something else, too, that <clears throat> there is this, yes, there's this fear of the outside world, but there's also this fear of within, that I'm all alone, you know, that, I'm, that I am by myself in this tent in the middle of this roiling sea of chaos. Um, Augustine said, you know, I've become a mystery to myself. I suddenly I don't know who I am. I'm not who I thought I was. And we begin to wonder, not only if we can understand the world around us, but also whether or not anyone could ever understand me, who I am. Um, So there was a study done where people were given words like this, word fragments and, and there's a letter or two left out and they were asked to fill in the word, whatever came to mind right away. And I'll I'll be interested to hear what you guys come up with when you see these, but... So they were asked to do this, fill it out, and then at the end of the exercise, they were supposed to go through and say, what does this say about me, that these were the first to come to mind? These words were the first to come to mind. And then they were given someone else's answers. And they were asked to sort of think about what what their answers say about them. And here's here's just a couple examples. All right, so we have the analysis of their own completion and the analysis of the other participant. So the person, so A and A are the same person. This is what A said about himself. I'm almost convinced that these are not at all revealing. And then, about someone else. He doesn't seem to read too much, since the natural to me completion of B blank blank K would be book. Beak seems rather random and might indicate deliberate unfocus of mind. <laughs> and then, B, I don't agree with these word stem completions as a measure of my personality. And then, of the other person. I get the feeling that whoever did this is pretty vain, but basically a nice guy. (laughs) So with all of these, the responses were the same. Like, people were were asked to analyze their own completions, and they basically said, no, not me. This does not describe me. Like, get this away from me. But then, with someone else, it was quick to say, oh yeah, this person is hyper-competitive. You know, they've got issues. And then, so After this study, they published it, and it's called, You Don't Know Me, But I Know You. (laughs) And uh, Schultz, uh, in her book, describes it this way. It's as if we regard other people as psychological crystals, with everything important refracted to the visible surface, while regarding ourselves as icebergs, with the majority of what matters submerged and invisible. Which gets at another side of this, too, that, like, mainly our fear of being wrong is actually a fear of people being wrong about us, that, that we are basically unknowable. Who could ever know me? Who could ever know the, the intricacies of what I have to deal with every day? And so this is where it goes from like the question of right and wrong to instead the question of righteousness, you know, justification. And, and that we live our lives as if in a courtroom. You know, the world is our courtroom and we are constantly um, our, own, our own lawyers. You know, we're, we're pleading our case. We're pleading our case that we're, um, that we should be found innocent. And with that comes all the courtroom kinds of questions. Do I stand condemned? <clears throat> am I, like the totality of who I am, am I justified? Um, and this is true whether you believe in God or you don't. Um, whether you have a moral code or you don't. Um, we're all living before a judge and we're trying to defend this exoneration. And... Um, you know this in, in your own relationships. I mean, think about, like, what relationships, if, if you just think right now, what relationships do you feel the need to measure up in? You know, what, what relationships are, do you think, like, man, I really ought to craft this email the right way? Um, or on your Instagram feed, like, who, who kind of, like, makes your blood boil when you see their Instagram pictures? Um, Because you think either they're a fraud or that they make you feel like a fraud. But then also, not just in relationships, but within yourself, like, where, where, like, there are also these places where you are in the courtroom with yourself. Um, Where are you sort of like advocating your own righteousness in your own head? Where are you thinking, um, this example came to mind for me? I, I really, um, I feel the need to call people back, you know. I never do it, but I always feel like if, if, I, if I just called people back, like I would, be, I would be righteous. But what people in your life, um, as soon as I find out that I haven't called someone back, I feel completely condemned. And then come all the litany of accusations about myself uh, that I feel like i uh, I should be someone I'm not. So what are the small little mistakes that you make that suddenly open up that litany of accusations? Like what are the small mistakes that you make that then make you think, I am not living like I should? And so, yeah, just like we were saying before, the best way to sort of step out of that world is to evade, you know, to, to not think about the ways that, that we are not who we should be. We, we build these binaries, you know, stories of good guys and bad guys and right ideas and wrong ideas, and, and we do our damnedest to make the story hold. Um, but all the while, two things are happening. One is you are just totally exhausted. I mean, it is exhausting to build your case. It is exhausting to, like, see the world around you and spend so much energy denying what what is true about yourself and about the world around you. It's exhausting to live that way. The second thing that's happening is you, you kind of become an asshole. You know, like when you become a lawyer and you're building your case for yourself and your own sense, sense of righteousness, you, you cease to be a person who needs people. You know, the needy parts of you are also what makes you lovable. And so no one can relate to you. So you're building your case, but you're also becoming someone no one wants to be around. And the Bible talks about these kinds of people all the time, just like Sarah was saying last night. I mean, the righteous people, the right people, um, who draw these lines in the sand, these binaries between the good and the bad. And at every corner, Jesus calls them the beautiful dead, you know, um, whitewashed tombs, the kinds of people who have stopped living in order to be right. Um, and he sees their willful their willful obedience and remembers the question you know, of you know, the settler out there in the tent banging pots to keep the wolves at bay. Like, does anyone understand me? Does anybody know me? And Jesus says, yeah, I do. I really do know you, and you are wrong. Like, you are wrong about who you are. You are not right. Um, And and this is, strangely enough, where the relief comes in. that, That someone can point to us and say, you are wrong about who you think you are. Because whenever a binary is drawn, we tend to stand on the right side of the line. And Jesus points the finger to take us to the wrong side. But the good news is that he goes to the wrong side. He always goes to the wrong side. All of his stories are about, you know, sheep going astray, coins getting lost, sons running away from home. He touches the untouchable, you know, and eats with the infamous. His entire ministry seems to basically say, you are an asshole, and I'm the, I'm the guy for you. You know, like, like that's, that's what you need to see. And, and, of course, like this is punctuated in the cross. Like what Christians believe to be the heart of our salvation comes in the epitome of error. You know, we, God came down, we mistook him, and then we killed him. And somehow, in the epitome of error, came our salvation. Our error was absorbed in his death. In the Gospel of John, he looks down from the cross at the madness, and he cries out to God, forgive them, for they don't know they're wrong. And so we continue to fight this forgiveness that we don't think that we've earned or needed. Um, But it's funny because we have... um, Last Sunday at church, we, we talked about um, the reading for, for last Sunday was uh, the reinstitution of Peter, Jesus coming back and, and um, having the fish by the charcoal fire with, with Peter. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's, it's the most beautiful picture of you know, the rock of the church being wrong. Utterly getting it wrong. And Jesus coming to that place of utter error and saying to him three times for each denial, like, you are reinstated. You, you, are, you are the, the shepherd. Um, so it's interesting that <clears throat> saying I was wrong is actually the real statement of faith here. To be able to say that I was wrong is, is, is what defines being a Christian. It's, it's your surrender of your own supposed ownership of the final word. It's, it's the surrender of saying, maybe I'm wrong here about this. And to be honest, it seems like the defining part of Christian character, instead of pointing to yourself for the answer, as you point to to someone who knows how the story ends. It's sad but true that in a world bent on getting it right, the defining character traits of the Christian faith have become, among others, moral certitude. It's sad because the power of the cross makes Christianity the only faith capable of saying, not sternly, I was right, but always, laughably, I was wrong. And what if this was the Christian witness? You know, what if, what if the Christian witness that, it's not, you know, they will know we are Christians by our love, but, <laughs> but instead, like, they will know we are Christians by our quick admission of guilt. You know, by our, by our quick ability to say like, yeah, it's probably true about me. Like, I'm kind of a mess. It's not, it's not how we're known. But what if it were, I mean, How beautiful would that be? So what a relief it is that Christianity allows us to concede our righteousness to someone much more dependable than we are. What a a relief just to simply be a sinner. What a relief that the work of being right was finished on the cross. Um, I wanna close with a poem that's actually in the Mockingbird magazine that you got. So if you have it with you, you can turn to the page. Um, It's a poem by Paul Hostovsky, and uh, I couldn't not read it because it's so perfect for for this talk. It's on page 78 if you have it. Otherwise, I'll put it on the screen too. You may not be able to read it. No, you will definitely not be able to read it. (laughs) Just listen, I'm a really, I got a really good voice, reading voice. Okay, it's called The Good News. The good news is you're wrong about everything. The bad news is not what you thought. The good news is not what you thought. That's the good news, and it's greater than you know and it's greater than you can imagine. You can't imagine being wrong about everything, can you? That's why the good news is so unimaginable. For starters, you're wrong about who you are, about what you are, and where you are, and what you are doing, and what you think is being done to you. I don't know about you, but for some of us, that's very good news. I'm not what I thought. You're not what I thought. You're not what you thought either, and neither is your mother. (laughs) You needn't figure it out. You needn't bother. You need do nothing but plead ignorance at every turn and keep returning, keep opening to the great good news. Thank you.